Welcome to Moonbeaming. I'm so excited to be here with you for today's episode. If you are receiving this episode in August of 2022, it's because you're a patron. Hi, thank you so much for being a patron. I wanted to drop a little treat for you while the podcast is on hiatus. I don't know what the word is, break, hiatus, sabbatical. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for supporting the podcast. This is how the podcast can get made. So I appreciate it more than words can say. And I love giving you extras, early bird listens, and other treats as a way of thanking you for your continued support. So thanks. If you are listening to this episode and it is October, hi, hello, how's it going? Today we have an amazing episode with the writer, author, and poet Lisa Marie Basile. Lisa is a poet, essayist, editor, chronic illness awareness advocate living in New York City. She's the founder and creative director of Luna Luna Magazine and its online community and the creator of Ritual Poetico, a curiosity project dedicated to exploring the intersection of writing, creativity, healing, and sacredness. Her work focuses on writing and poetry, intentionality, and accessible ritual, foster care, and family, trauma recovery, and chronic illness. Lisa is the author of multiple books, including The Magical Writing Grimoire, Light Magic for Dark Times, as well as a few poetry collections. Lisa is so inspiring. We are so lucky to have her as a contributor to the Many Moons Guide for this year, for 2022, as well as being a facilitator in our community. She is going to be one of the guest teachers for Resourcing the Creative Self in September. And Lisa will also be sharing a special workshop she's created just for this class. You can sign up for that on our site, moonstudio.co, and you can look for resourcing the creative self if you want to sign up for that series. And we are welcoming Lisa not once, but twice, because in October... Lisa is giving a perfectly timed workshop. So if you're listening to this in October, Lisa is giving a workshop on October 21st. It's called Creative Collaboration with the Shadow. She'll present prompts. She'll talk about processes so that you can create an individualized approach to your creative practice, whatever that looks like. You'll leave this workshop having made some kind of art. So in order to sign up for that, again, just go to our website, www.moon-studio.co, and I'll see you there. It's going to be really brilliant. So this conversation... Lisa and I talk about a lot. What didn't we talk about, really? We covered so much terrain, including how poetry is similar to spell work. And she discussed the possibilities of divination and healing within art, including sharing about her own practice. Lisa also generously shares how she connects to ancestral magic 
without connecting directly to her lineage, to her personal lineage. This is a question I get asked all the time. How do I conduct ancestral magic when my ancestors mm, don't really feel safe about connecting to them? So Lisa has some good insights on that. You're going to want to tune into that. Lisa and I talk about some of the gifts that illness has given us, how we've learned lessons through our chronic illness that we otherwise wouldn't have learned. And Lisa shares about how she is currently embarking on shadow work. We get into so much more. We talk about our experiences publishing a little bit. Lisa shares how she knows when it is time to write about something, like how to decide what to focus on creatively, and how she trusts that creative, intuitive voice. A little note here, a gentle note for our gentle listeners. We talk about anxiety, trauma, chronic illness, and mention death. Obviously, we do not talk about these topics for the entire conversation, but they are touched upon in addition to magic, writing, creativity, New Jersey, healing, symbologies, crows, and other good stuff. But if you're not in the mood to hear two people talk openly and honestly about those topics, I suggest you take care of yourself and you skip this one. We are a huge proponent of taking care of yourself over here on the podcast. All right. Now, on to a gorgeous conversation with the wonderful Lisa Marie Basile. Welcome to Moonbeaming, Lisa. I am so excited to have you here today. I know you as someone who does a lot of different things very brilliantly and very well. You are a writer. You're a writer of many different genres. You are a poet. You are an advocate for those in the foster care system. You talk about having chronic illness. You're an editor of a literary magazine. And I know that you are absolutely more than that. I know I'm leaving out about 30 million things. So I was wondering right now, how are you thinking of yourself? Wow, that's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking and thanks for having me. I'm really happy and honored to be here. How I see myself right now is I think I'm going back to my original self, which was always just a poet. I'm trying to distill my life experiences into beautiful words, beautiful processes. I'm trying to capture what it means to be alive in the most in the way that that feels most close to home for me, which is through poetry. But of course, everything is synthesized through that. My work about health, about magic, everything. So yeah, I guess I'd say I'm back to writing and poetry. I love that. And we're going to get into that. I have a lot of things to ask you about poetry and alchemy and, and language. I was wondering when you were younger when you first encountered poetry, what did it catalyze within you? Poetry has always been for me a place that holds liminality really well because the essence, the nature of poetry is that you can write between the lines, you can write the experiences that you've had in ways that I think ordinary everyday language doesn't clearly express, but poetry by its very nature permits you to kind of 
express the small things, the invisible things, the things that you can't put your finger on. And it gives you permission for that. Whereas other kinds of writing maybe doesn't. So poetry always allowed me to tell the truth, even if I had to kind of put a veil around it because I wasn't ready to say something out loud. or I wasn't even strong enough to face it for myself. So it's a soft home. I guess that's how I would put it. I love that. It makes me think so much about the similarities between spell casting and tarot card reading and poetry, because as you said, there is often the word or the groupings of words in a poem, but A, it's often or can be used as symbology pointing not only to other collective tropes or symbols, but symbolizing many different things all at once. It's very layered. It very much reminds me of, you know, this idea in witchcraft that magic is found in the mundane and magic is a symbolic language. And we utilize these symbols as archetypes, as places of potency, not only through our association with them, but with other people's association with them. And I think of the interpretation of a poem as being so personal that it is also like a spell because you're putting out this energy or that these transmissions into the universe and you don't always know how they're going to change you or how they're going to change the reader. And it's funny, I didn't share this with you, but before we got on, so I have my symbols, like I have a series of symbols that are very meaningful to me. And right before I plugged my headphones in and pushed my pug out of the room so he wouldn't bother me and be loud, (laughs) I saw them this morning, the dog I have two dogs. One of the dogs was making a ruckus and I was like, what is she doing? And there was a scarab on our windowsill. And that is one of my uh, magical symbols. It's an animal. It's an insect that shows up for me really as an affirmation and, and a lot of other things. It's a scarab is one of the original symbols of cancer. So like scarabs, turtles are very meaningful to me. And then as I like got into my little office, all of these crows congregated like, and were cawing right before. And that's my other one. I won't go, I won't go into all the stories about crows, but I was wondering, do you have symbols? How do they show up for you? Do you use poetry and writing as a way to connect with those? I'd love to hear about some of the languages or symbols or spells that have shown up for you through the years in your work? Oh my God, what a juicy question. And I think it's really cool that you saw both of these totally potent symbols in one day. I mean, that's, it's something. So I'll answer one part of that question first. In my poetry, at least in the past several years, I have been invoking a lot of ancestral magic not necessarily specifically. I'm not trying to write about ancestry or heritage per se, but I am calling on those ancestral symbols to power up my poems, if you will. So a lot of that is sea, it's salt, it's sun, it's it's just images that I think connect back to my Sicilian background, because I think that those are the things that make me feel most connected and most in tune with myself and some higher, more divine truth or something. And I've always looked at poetry as a way of invocation. So if I write a poem and I infuse it with these symbols, these images, then every single time I read the poem out loud to myself or I whisper it to myself, I call in that energy and that magic. And it's sort of the same for when I'm doing like a live reading. The room shifts. If I am generous with the room about my magic and the things that light me up and that bring magic into my life, 
I feel like the room feels it too. Even if, you know, they don't have Sicilian heritage, even if the C isn't a symbol that really aligns with them. Approaching a poem as a magical thing, I think, changes it from just a thing that is written to something bigger, something that actually can shift energy and shift the self. Um, And another way that I use poetry that I've always found really powerful is writing through the lens of an archetype. So maybe that will be the Black Madonna, or maybe it will be a tree, or maybe it will be the ocean itself. These to me are archetypal energies, spirits, animist things that speak to me. And so when I write through their lens, through their voice, I call them in, I honor them. It's a veneration, it's devotion, it's a translation of what they're saying to me. So poetry has always been this place for me to understand the things that Mm. feel magical to me. It's a collaboration, I guess. Yeah, it's this dialogue with all that both you hold sacred and all which supports you. Exactly. I'm wondering if you've ever had a moment where you, I have so many questions. Have you (laughs) ever had a moment where you've gone back and reread some of your poems and if they have served as oracles or tarot cards almost or affirmations around something you're you're grappling with or wondering about even though you wrote it a while ago oh yes okay so i wrote this book andalusia it's got to be about 11 years ago now i was in grad school and this book, Andalusia, was a little poetry chapbook, super slim, maybe 25 poems in total. And it's all one kind of continuous poem. It's not separate poems. And that was like a dream, a fever dream collection of confessions and dreamlike collections of feelings and fears and, and traumas about my mother, about family, about Mm. heritage, about what we are born with in terms of our wounds, what we want to heal from, the things that oppress us, the things that really shape who we are as people. And that book for me forever still feels really truthful and potent and honest. And I just reread it like three days ago. It's so, so funny that you asked this. And I saw that everything that my little poet heart wanted when writing it became, became true. The healing started, the forgiveness started, the understanding started to happen and take shape in my life now. So it's almost like I'm looking back on a younger me who so desperately needed to heal certain things and then holding it in my hand is holding myself in my hand and saying, oh my God, girl, you did it. It just, it meant the world to me to see that I was able to confront the things I needed to confront. And you know what? I think that poetry truly gives me a way of manifesting the things I need in my life more than anything else. Other people obviously turn to manifestation through any other means, visual meditation, anything else. But for me, it's poetry. And I mean, you know, I can't cure the world's illnesses through poetry, but I can like chip away at little things in my own life. And that feels very real for me. That is so beautiful. I love this idea of the naming of it and the setting of intentions as being like through poetry as a spell and also being a way to connect with aspects of yourself, maybe your subconscious. As you were talking, I had all of these images of inner child, past self, healing future self, you know, also the hope that is inherent when we name our pain. Like Mm. it's not like they're in this culture of toxic positivity. There's such a encouragement to bypass and to put a happy spin on tragedy, really, and on wounds. And 
there's something so gorgeous about understanding that naming and collecting and being with our personal and or collective shadows and wounds. It's sort of a hopeful, loving, kind, honest thing. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit of your thoughts around that. Yeah, I love that. It's so, it's so absolutely true. You know, I do think we live in a society where to be wounded, to show your pain, um, for the most part, is uncomfortable for people and a burden. And a lot of people internalize the idea that it makes you really weak or to express brokenness is to be broken. And obviously, that's, you know, not necessarily the way that we should be looking at it. And it's okay to be broken. I mean, we all are in some way, right? Exactly. And I mean, it's not a condition that defines us. It's, it's a way of growth and it's inevitable. But I think that poetry for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other, a lot of other writers, it's a way of integrating shadow because you have to be really self-aware in order to, I think, produce poetry that resonates, at least with yourself and hopefully with others too, if that's what you, if you want to do that. So you have to integrate the shadow in order to write from that truly authentic and honest place. And poetry gives you the exact safe space and container for that. I mean, you show up to the page and you are looking into the proverbial reflection pool and translating yourself. So often, I think it's easy to go through life avoiding and turning your head away from the things that make you uncomfortable, whether it be actual wounds that other people, you know, hurt you, or maybe it's your own dark self and dark desires and fears and subversive stuff that you're just ashamed of. And it's mucky and it's messy and it's uncomfortable. I think poetry gives you a place to really express it. And that's where another part of the magic comes from. It's sort of like a magical alphabet. You are able to veil as much as you want. You are able to write in coded language. You're able to write in analogy and metaphor. But the truth is still embedded in there. The intent is still there. The core of that feeling, that truth is still there and always will be there. And the moment you get it down is sort of the moment you give it a name and you say, it's okay. I accept you. I love you. You're here. You're real. And it's okay if you're dark. That's fine. (sighs) That's so beautiful. And I think it's such a great tie-in to your piece that you offered in many moons for a eclipse in Scorpio that we are on the cusp of when this recording comes out. And I wanted to share a little bit of your writing because it's so beautiful and it covers a lot of things I want to explore with you. So this is just an excerpt. Scorpio's palace welcomes all. It is a space to shed binaries and hidden selves. It is a space that asks you to let go of shame around the subversive or strange. It offers us a watery reflection pool, dark and deep and shimmering. If you cast your eyes into the water, you will see yourself. It's a very wild party where we are returned to ourselves. And during this new moon and eclipse season, it is time to ask, How can I boldly reframe how I see or hide or manage myself and learn to integrate my many parts? This is a sort of moony medicine, which can be hard to swallow. An example, I used to try and make myself small and quiet and likable. My shadow self felt like an enemy, something I had to control and muffle. Coming from a background of PTSD due to oppressive poverty, years of being in foster care, and a loss of childhood, I thought if I reacted, emoted too often, spoke up, ate too much, wanted too badly, or made strange art, I would be seen as a bad seed, furthering a cycle of pain. And so I hid my past and diluted myself. I hid my anger, yet it was my fuel. I hid my sorrow, yet it shaped my empathy. I hid my otherness, which is a superpower. I hid my voice, which is how I show up to my community. Shadow work helped me free myself from binaries of good versus bad, 
and inspired me to bring some of what I'd hidden to the surface. It isn't easy. Mining the depths, especially during eclipse season, requires us to prepare for potentially heavy shifts and to give ourselves the gift of flexibility. Be flexible in how you control or express yourself. Be flexible enough to exist in liminal spaces. Be flexible enough to both let go and call in. And I think that is so beautiful and it encapsulates so much of what we were talking about. It seems like you naturally are drawn to the shadow. I naturally am drawn to the shadow. I'm like a dark moon baby. (laughs) I can't really help but be drawn to the more subversive. I mean, I think if you're a witch, I think if you're someone who's interested in art, I think if you're someone who's interested in healing and growth, you can't avoid the shadow, right? Right. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit, if you had some kind of techniques or in your own life, if you've had some practices that have helped you make friends with your shadow. Yeah. So first of all, you read that excerpt so beautifully. I could listen to you read all day long. And thank you for that. And thank you for including me in the book. The the things I think that have helped me the most with shadow work in the past few years, because it's cha- it changes. It, change, it changes so very often for me, how I show up to my practice and just myself. Number one has definitely been meditative walks through the graveyard. I know it sounds so on the nose and I know I'm a Scorpio and it sounds like something, (laughs) it sounds very Scorpio, but it isn't all as dark and goth as it sounds. It really is simple and beautiful and light. And I choose an early morning, probably once every two weeks. And there's a really beautiful graveyard in Brooklyn near me called Greenwood. And they're amazing because it's a sanctuary, plus they hold art events. It's a very queer-friendly space. It's just a really wonderful graveyard that is connected to the arts and just growth and development and education and nature. So it's a safe place already. And I just, I do the loop. I walk through the entire thing and up and down the hills. And for me personally, death has always been a huge fear. I live with a chronic illness, so I have some health anxiety And that's been my biggest struggle the past few years is communicating with the dead, forgiving those who have died, allowing myself to feel discomfort in my body, Mm. relinquishing control. These are some major themes for me. Um, And so walking through the graveyard quietly and respectfully and just without music, without any distraction allows me to kind of sit with the reality that I don't have ultimate control. The cycles are all around me at all times and cycles are good and beautiful. And when I'm gone, something else will come and I will be part of the earth and it flourishes in perpetuity from there. So that's one of the ways that I do shadow work. And sometimes I write not so often. It usually comes a few hours later after getting home and really like sitting in that feeling. Another way that I've been doing shadow work is mostly through tarot recently. I have an Italian tarot deck that it's called the Vera Sabila. It's an oracle deck. It's very chatty. It feels like Mm. an old Italian woman is like mad at you (laughs) and telling you what's what, which is something that I relate to as an Italian girl from New Jersey. (laughs) I kind of just ask that deck all my most complex questions and see what it responds back to me. Oh, yeah. And it's usually very uncomfortable, you know? I do know. There's a card that's the thief and it comes up a lot. I'm like, this is not literal, but I have to figure this out. And so, you know, what has been stolen from me? What am I stealing from myself? These, These questions come up. So, yeah, I would say Oracle decks and long walks in the graveyard. (laughs) That sounds amazing and actually a really fun way to do shadow work. You know, I have a chronic illness as well that I have to manage, like similar to you, that takes me out of control of my time, of the way I want to feel. 
of my energy levels and all of that stuff. And I, I too have had to confront death and really use death as sort of a place to both hand over control and try to experience surrender, Mm. as well as understanding that we need death to live. Like, even if you're a vegetarian, you're eating something that has died, you're eating someone else's life force. And, you know, for me, and I'm, I don't want to assume, but I think possibly for you, I've really had to confront yeah, that loss of control. And what is it really, what is that really about? But also a lot of grief, you know, a lot of grief that comes up around the ways in which we'd like to live our lives, the ways in which maybe we literally can't because of our bodies. And this is a very open topic because so many people have restrictions on the way they live their life, whether it be class or race or gender or geographical location, or if they're living in a war-torn country or, you know, and on and on disability and on and on and on. And I've sort of been meditating on that acceptance of what is in order to help me give myself what I need or to get closer to myself, because often I find the control stuff and even the grief sometimes can be like a red herring, like a symbol, like it's like, well, it's not quite that. And in the same way, a tarot card or an Oracle deck will show you, you know, you're asking a question about X, but they're like, no, actually, babe, you need to look at this. Or what is this question really about? Yes. So I was wondering if there have been some potent truths or messages that you have found while combing through limitations, illness, grief, and all of the more uncomfortable sensations and sort of existential questions that one really can't avoid in this life? Yeah. So it's a great question. I think, so I started getting sick around a decade ago, maybe a little bit more. And it was super vague at that point, no diagnosis and no understanding of the idea of being sick wasn't even something I gave a second of a thought to. I mean, I still was in that mid twenties, I'm going to live forever sort of mindset. and. It was it was naivety, of course. It was youth. It was privilege, health privilege. It was a lot of things. And then when I started to get sick, and I got, you know, things became more real, and I got a diagnosis. And every year, it gets more real, even though it's managed. I started having massive shifts as a human being. Mm. Not to put a super shiny positive spin on anything, because there are dark days and there's a lot of a lot of resentment and a lot of anger that i carry too but the thing that i think shines above all of those negative feelings is a deep deep almost lusciously glowing appreciation and gratitude for the present moment mm. a presentness that i never had when i was younger because there are so many days where things are out of my control i have to change plans i my energy shift my energy levels are totally zonked or I'm in pain. When I do have a good moment, I do have a good day. I seize it with my whole heart. And obviously sometimes that means resting and like reading a book and dazing in the sun. And that's beautiful. And that's just as productive as seizing it for productivity reasons Mm. um, or doing things reasons. But I, I feel like it's like I've been reborn as a vampire in a sort of way, like colors are sharper, mm. sounds are more beautiful, the, the, like this sort of conversation, like I really, really, really cherish it. So yeah, again, I don't want to put a super toxic positive spin on this, but it's like I've been awakened through the pain in a sense that like, wow, I love life. I love the good moments. I'm very privileged to have the good moments when I have them. And I realize that not everyone feels that way because sometimes illness and like you said, all those other limitations, huge, huge limitations are 
so painful and so, and they cause so much suffering. So I can only really speak to the one element for myself, but sure, my heart goes out, you know, my heart goes out to people where it's like, they cannot find that silver lining. And sometimes you can't. And I totally understand that too. I totally understand that too. And also I do relate that there's something that kind of happens at least. Okay. I will only speak for myself. It really clarifies and sharpens and it makes me much more appreciative. Like you said, and that's like, I was telling you before, again, we went on, like, I don't want to waste people's time because I don't want my time wasted because I live with the real, the, the, the real diagnosis, the reality. And for me, it really clarified and sharpened what was most important for me. And it really made me cultivate those values as much as I could. It also did catalyze me in a way to like, to get going on certain things I wanted to get going on that maybe shame or imposter syndrome or whatever kind of was holding me back from. It really pushed me to figure out a way to live that I'm still trying to figure out how to do. I'll let everyone know when I'm there, (laughs) but like a way where I can live, make a good living and not have to be productive eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, because I had to, like, I couldn't go into an office where like, you know, I would, I mean, I don't want to get too granular, but I was having experiences where like, I literally like, was in the bathroom collapse. Like I couldn't be in an office or I would have been fired. You know what I mean? Yes. So like figuring all of that out, it, it's made me more hopeful of like, oh, well, maybe I can heal this thing. Or when you have a chronic illness where there isn't necessarily a possibility of being cured, so to yeah. speak. And I know that many people listening have similar experiences, whether they're neurodivergent or they have Um, an injury or, you know, whatever it might be, right? This like urgent push to have things be cured is the binary that you spoke so beautifully about in your piece that we're trying to get away from. But it's also made me really sit with, okay, what if this is it? Then what? Or what can I do? What can I do? Okay, maybe I'll never heal a specific trauma or something. But what can I do? with what I have, I figured these other things out. I think similar to you, my illness is absolutely not the worst trauma I've experienced. And I think that when you face a series of your in quote, like worst nightmares happening and you survive, which is very scorpionic yes, and you find a way to metabolize that or just live with it. Nothing, not everything has to be alchemized or become this, you know, Disney movie, But I think it just offers a perspective, as you said, that is expansive rather than constrictive. And I was wondering if you wanted to share any thoughts around that. That's so beautiful and such an important message and such a great reminder. And it's a great reminder to me to remember all of that. Like you said, your sickness isn't necessarily your most traumatic experience, which, you know, that's hard because that's traumatizing in itself. I would say I'm still very much healing from like displacement and foster care. And even though I'm fine, I go through my days fine. I'm, I'm not crying about it. It's like left an indelible mark on me and it's deep. And for so long, I taught myself to be strong, to get through, to push through, to conquer. Don't be the weirdo. Don't be the sad girl. Don't be hurt. Don't carry your albatross. Don't let anyone know that you were hurt or different or othered or that you're, that you carry this, what I thought of as shameful thing. And in the past like year or so, my sickness has really kind of ramped up. Like I, like I said, it's an inflammatory disease. So has good times and bad times. It's up and down, but it's been a little, a little extra the past year. And I've, I've been leaning into like remembering my younger self and saying, Lisa, you have been through so much. It's It's been so heavy already. You've got this. Like This pain you're feeling today, it's temporary probably. You can sit with this discomfort. You can be uncomfortable and so, still survive it. You can feel scared. You can feel all these things and 
it's okay. Like you don't need to pathologize it. You don't need to fear it. It's going to be all right. Cause we already know you're strong. So I sometimes have to give myself these pep talks. Cause I certainly, I have a cancer moon. I get, I get sensitive. I fall prey to my own dark thoughts sometimes. And I romanticize my pain sometimes. And sometimes it's, it's, you know, it's good to remember, you know, you've got this, we can look at the evidence and we can, um, find a way to anchor ourselves. And I'm talking to me and the and the little voices in my mind. Yes. I think it's important for people who have chronic illness or again, not warm and fuzzy topics to be able to like share their experiences without needing to be fixed, without needing to be helped with sort of being able to just express what is and also what some of the ways are in which we manage and or as we both shared there are gifts there like there are you know um some people go through their entire life without questioning what they want or going deeper and i think that these sorts of things will plunge you (laughs) like right there i wanted to ask you a few more questions that are a little bit off the topic, but you know, we can make it however we'd like. But there was one thing that you said in the beginning of our conversation that really struck me because it's a question I get asked all the time and you touched on it really well, or you have experience with it. So I would love to hear your experience with this subject of doing ancestral work ancestral connection and healing when perhaps your direct ancestors are not people or figures you feel safe or comfortable invoking. I get this question, like one of my top 10 questions. And I want to ask you that because you brought it up we're in this season of ancestry for those folks who will be hearing this in autumn. What are some of the ways you've been able to explore ancestral magic, even though you might not feel super jazzed about communing with your ancestral line directly? Oh, great question. I've thought a lot about this. When I started getting into just ancestral work in general, when it became clear to me that that was something I should do, I, I kept reading all these, you know, books and articles and reading people's Instagram accounts. And it was just all ancestral veneration and altars and pictures and candles and offerings and devotions. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I not only do I feel very disconnected from at least my immediate ancestors, my, you know, my grandparents were not warm. They were not loving. There's a mm. lot of religious trauma you know, they went through, they came here from another country, they went through assimilation, they were not, you know, interested in passing down certain folk practices and stuff. So even though I was raised, you know, with a culture around me, it wasn't like I was invited to really deep dive and explore. So it has been a path for me that I have to kind of forge on my own. And those people aren't safe to me. They're not the safest people to me. So I kind of decided I would approach ancestral work, not necessarily through veneration, a great, not mentor, not personal mentor, but someone I really learned from is Mary Grace Farron, who wrote the book Italian Folk Magic. And she is very explicit in her videos and her writing saying, hey, you know what, just because they're dead or just because they're family doesn't mean you have to respect or honor or call them in. It's okay for you to say, you know what, not you, grandpa, not you, uncle, so-and-so. And that kind of gave me a sense of permission that this was bigger than a particular individual. Um, So my ancestral practice really goes back to the earth. It goes back to the qualities of certain cultures, resilience, survival, family, hope, community, community nurturing, community values. Um, So calling in those qualities that are from one of the lines of my heritage calling in through foods. I was listening to a podcast recently with Mallory Vaudois and also Dolores Alfieri Toronto. 
And they were talking about using cooking, kitchen witchery as ancestral work. And so, you know, sometimes I get foods that come from a certain place and I work through them and I honor the land and I honor the, you know, everything, the vegetation, the people who pick the foods and the process by which I make them. And sometimes I just work through ancestors I'll never know the names of or never know who they are, but they made me one by one by one by one by one, generation, generation, generation. And here I am. So just thanking them for my ability to exist right now in this timeline, whether they ever thought of me or not. So I definitely don't approach it on an individual level. I approach it as something much, much bigger. And that really gives me a sense of comfort in that I feel like I'm being held by the spirits of millions rather than any one particular person. Such a beautiful answer. I love it so much. And thank you. Thank you so much. You are an artist in so many different forms. You write in so many different genres. And, you know, I also think you genre across, right? So how do you know when it's time to write what? (laughs) I've struggled. I'll be honest. Something that I should just completely confess right here, and I feel like it's right, it's a right time and a right place to confess it, is I recently wrote three books for one publisher, and they're nonfiction in the sort of magic self-help space. I love these books. I put my heart into these books, and I stand behind every single word. I do. Of course, I love these books. They're of me. But I have to say, like, writing the third one I felt in my heart, it's not time. It's not time, don't do this. You you need to do something else. You need to explore essay. You need to go back to poetry. And yet I did it. And I sort of ignored that voice in my mind and it, it led to burnout and resentment. And I think it's like, there's two problems with admitting this. One is that people say I'm being um, ungrateful for my publishing experience. And two is that all writing must be magical and wonderful all the time. And you have to be happy about it. And it's like, I am very grateful. Yeah, I totally am. Like, I realize that I am a white girl and I have been given this opportunity and it's real. And I, I respect that platform and the gravitas attached to it. But I also respect myself as an artist. And I shouldn't have written that third book when I did because I was burned out and not ready. Yeah. So the answer to that question is I really have to listen to the little voice in my heart. And that little voice was saying, you need to do some writing about family. You need to do some writing about self. You need to get into a literary space. No more for the masses. Maybe you don't even publish it or share it. Maybe you just sit at home and you keep it for the next four years. So that's where I'm at. And healing that like mess up on my behalf that I, I took another year and a half and didn't listen to myself. So I I think the answer is your body knows, you know, the story, you know, what's itching to come out and you know, the format that it wants to come out in, you know, in your heart. And if you don't know, you could probably take some time and just listen. And I did not. Listen, I think it's super real. You do not sound ungrateful. I think this is one of the issues that creative people have in needing to make a living or getting opportunities, right? As you said, many people dream of being published. So if you are approached by a publisher and a publisher is like, hey, let's publish another book. And you're like, you created the idea and it's in your wheelhouse. And you're like, yeah, that would be like, I can do this. Like, why not? This is an exciting topic. I don't know. I don't think you sound ungrateful. I think that also as more honesty comes out about the publishing industry, What I will only share here, and maybe I'll share later elsewhere, you know, writing the my trade book, my publisher trade book with a publishing company, not I self-publish all the time. Right. Writing my trade book was absolutely the least magical experience I've ever had. It was really hard. I will not go into details, but it just was work. It was just a lot of fighting for my core beliefs and values and a lot of time being wasted and a lot of no support around my art basically. So I had to both like write and fight and that's not like my jam, you know, I mean, I can do it because I I do it, but anyway, you don't sound ungrateful. I also was wondering, but what does it feel like for you is knowing 
what to write about. Is it similar to a feeling of intuition? Like what does it, is it calling to you? Do you get little clues? First of all, it makes me so sad and mad to hear that you had that experience. And all all I'll say here is (laughs) I deeply understand. It's no fun. So yeah, when, okay. So when it comes to really feeling like sensing that intuition, that call to do certain kinds of writing, for example, I write poetry, I write personal essay, I write nonfiction and that in my day job is being a, a health writer. So that's different, but it's little things. What am I drawn to in the store? Like I'm walking through a bookshop and I just keep picking up little books, this book, this book, this book. What am I looking at? What is lighting me up? When I read a line, I'm like, wow, that's so beautiful. This is really, wow, this is amazing. Is it poetry? Is it is it essay? Is it a hybrid thing? So I kind of take note of like what is like making me feel alive, what I'm being pulled to if I'm just like sort of sitting in my room with books and I keep pulling something off the shelf. What is it? Because sometimes mm. it's poems. I just need a 30 second experience of beauty. Or sometimes I'm like, I'm really in the mood for like learning someone's story. So I try to listen to what I'm being called toward, but mostly I'd say just for myself, I guess, when I'm trying to write what wants to come out versus what do I Mm. try to force? Because oftentimes I'm like, I'm going to write like a beautiful, delicious essay and it's going to be really literary and it's going to have so many different sections and topics and it's going to be great. But then the reality is my body is like, you want something simple, something soft, something that kind of nourishes the spirit quickly. And I sit down and I write a poem and that feeling of just having done the right thing washes over me. But it's not the thing I thought I was going to do. And it's, it's not this big, dramatic, epiphanic moment. So I try to just sort of listen to what's clawing and what wants to come out. And then like content wise and thematically, I I get obsessive. So I just keep thinking, you have to talk about your history in foster care. You have to get it out. You have to say the truth. You have to do it. So that's what I'm obsessing on. That's what I'm trying to work on. And everything else can wait. And you know, it's like, it's hard because sometimes it's like, does the market need that? Do people want to read about that? Are people going to even relate to that? Mm. And the answer is like, maybe not, but I have to do it. So that's my only real answer, listening to yourself. I think it's great. I have more questions around that, if you don't mind. <laughs> no. How have you come to feel safe enough to trust that voice? Yeah, I guess it's through years of experience. Early on, meaning early on, like 10, 15 years ago, when I really started writing, I was very driven by writing something that could be entertaining to others. Mm. Not necessarily like a fun read, but something other people could understand, connect to, enjoy, you know, something that might inspire people. And throughout the years, I have like started picking up on what I feel when I finish something and the feeling of finishing something that feels right to me versus the feeling of finishing something that I think will appeal to others is a lot bigger and stronger. And so I've started trusting that. I've started trusting that little voice inside my head that says, hey, do this for you. Do it for you. If someone else likes it, that's amazing. That's bonus. That's icing on the cake. But just let's let's do this for you. And time and again, I've started seeing every time I finish and then I write for myself versus others, it feels good. It feels right. It feels like home. And I guess through experience and through repeated proving myself, that's how I've come to trust it. And yeah, I'm never going to write a mass market. I'm never going to be the person that writes maybe the it topic. And that's okay. I'm going to write what feels right for me. Yeah, it's taken a long time to trust that. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, you know, especially because you do write often about harder, more challenging things. Do you have any practices or rituals or things you do when you feel drawn to write about something, but maybe shame or anxiety or your shadow, whatever it could be, 
is sort of coming up and saying, hey, no, or, you know, like, how how do you kind of work with that? I, I'm sure people would really love to hear about your process. Yeah. So I have anxiety. I've been treated and I'm in treatment for anxiety. Got really bad in the past few years. And that usually manifests as panic attacks and dissociative stuff. And I hate it. I compl- I hate it. It it pushes out on the little Scorpio in me that needs things to be in control. And anxiety is a boss. So I have to learn to listen to it and understand it, give it its space and its validation as much as I hate that. And sometimes it comes knocking when I write about past stuff. So and I guess number one, long gone are the days of sitting and typing feverishly for hours and hours and hours and hours without stop. And I look up and it's 1.30 in the morning and I've been mining my past and my trauma. That is a quick ticket to Anxietyville and maybe dissociation. And I'm not here for it anymore. So temper the writing, get up, get some water, go outside, get some sunlight, get some air, do some stretching, go pet your cat, go water your plants. Let's break this up. It sounds romantic and really sexy to sit there and keep bashing at the keyboard. And sometimes taking yourself out of that writing tunnel is hard because you know, how can I, you know, how do I get back in? But it is really about sustainability. And if you're crashing and you're causing yourself pain and grief every time you write, you're going to train yourself like Pavlovian sort of training to not sit down and do it anymore. So try to keep it a peaceful process try to have grounding and you know somatic techniques to keep me present in this moment. There's nothing worse than feeling like I'm lost in the past and I can't reach back. And then number 2 is to you know this is tough because not everyone has access to it, but work with a therapist. And if you can't work with a therapist, have a CBT workbook or notebook or a journal where you kind of keep track of your feelings while you're writing. Um, so if things come up that are a little uncomfortable, you can kind of confront them, notice them, it's fine. And you don't have to be putting yourself through pain as you write. I think there's this like misconception that the artist must suffer in order to produce. And suffering is great for like a month, but not if you want to keep writing. <laughs> uh, so wise. So wise. Lisa, you are teaching a workshop for our folks who will be in the Resourcing the Creative Self cohort in September. And you are also teaching a workshop for folks in October that anyone can sign up for. So what are you most excited about sharing uh, with folks? What What are you feeling pulled to sort of focus on? Right now, I think my biggest pull is to make people feel comfortable with themselves because I feel like I've taken a lot of writing and a lot of like just general creativity workshops and there's so much information being blasted at you and so many like little assignments that you have to do that sometimes you find yourself lost at sea and you're just like oh I have to do this thing okay she said this all right but I want the workshops to make people feel like they're guiding their own experience. They're getting in touch with themselves. They're being encouraged to feel safe within themselves so that they can then create or so that they can then heal. So I want them to feel like they're creating this experience with me. I'm not just talking at them or giving them things to do. Mm. I want them to feel at home. So whether that be like guiding them through a shadow work practice or talking about like creative, sustainable, sustainable creativity, I want them to feel like they're really present. And so I'm trying to formulate ways to make that, make that space feel like home and make them feel like they're a key player in the moment. I'm very excited. It sounds so beautiful. I'm so excited. I cannot wait. I can't, I really truly cannot (laughs) wait. What you are sharing is what so many people need. That's literally why I call it resourcing the creative self, yeah. right? We have to feel resourced. We have to feel safe. Or again, if we don't necessarily feel safe, we have to find tools and practices and techniques that help us either manage and sit with or flow through or a little bit of both. So I cannot wait for those. They're going to be amazing. 
you can uh, sign up for them on our website. And Lisa, where can people find you? Where can people get your work? How can folks message you and say how much they enjoy this conversation? They enjoy your work so much. Let us know. Well, thank you for all of that. I'm really, really genuinely, sincerely excited to do this. And same. I adore you. Same. Likewise. I mean, we are very earnest, sincere individuals, you know? Thank you. Yeah, no, I just, I just, I just love everything that you do. So I'm really happy to be here. You could find me just Lisa Marie Basile, B-A-S-I-L-E.com or Lisa Marie Basile on Instagram or Twitter. I answer DMs. I will chat with you if you have questions. I run a magazine called Luna Luna. So lunalunamagazine.com. If you want to check that out, you can. One day, probably in early 2023, we'll open submissions. So if you're a writer, you know, connect with me. Yay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. That was our conversation. I hope you loved it as much as I loved having it. We'll all be seeing Lisa soon through the studio, either in September for resourcing the creative self or in October on October 21st for a workshop on creative collaboration with the shadow. So I know I will see some of you on the astral, but also like in the Zoom room. I'll be seeing you in the Zoom room. Until next time, be good to yourselves and each other.